We've been advocating for a low ball and a quality 50-50 combination for the last almost couple of years now. That mix has proven out in down markets and up markets. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. In this episode, Mark Race interviews Chris Heeks and Chris McKinney about the virtues of factor investing. From quality to dividends, the two portfolio managers reveal how factor-based ETFs have performed during the COVID crisis and which ones investors should be considering for the months ahead. Before we hear from our experts, we'd like to remind you that when buying and selling ETFs, it's best to avoid trading near the open and close of the market, especially during periods of heightened volatility. We also recommend using limit orders and revisiting those orders regularly during the day, given that markets may continue to shift dramatically in these turbulent times. I'm your host, Mark Wraith. I'm the head of product for BMO Game Canada, covering mutual funds and ETFs. We're joined today by Chris McKinney and Chris Heeks, both portfolio managers on our ETF desk where they are focused on the equity ETFs and as well uh, manage the derivative strategies. So let's begin with an update on the markets. I think we've been very much positively surprised this week as equity markets continue to come back strongly, particularly on Monday, both on the back of the hopes of flattening the, the COVID-19 infection curve rate and with the hope of better cooperation between the Saudis, the Russians, and the U.S. on oil. We haven't necessarily seen that come through yet, but certainly there's there's hope on the horizon. So with investors unsure if this is a legitimate rebound supported by fundamental data, or if it's just more of a hope rally, what indicators do you have from your ETF desk? Can you speak to some of the flows that you're seeing? Is it coming into equities, the growth strategies, or is it more defensive in nature going to fixed income and cash-like products? But as well, since you guys manage the, the option book through the highly successful covered calls, can you speak to what the option market is telling us about the outlook on the market? Thanks. I'll turn it over to both Chris's. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Uh, maybe I'll start with uh, the flows segment of that question. Um, you know, the flows have really been pretty strong in the ETF market. And a lot of the things we were talking on the call last week, uh, we've seen kind of come to fruition this week. So we now have a full month of data from March to analyze. Flows in the Canadian market were about $2.8 billion on the ETF side. That's about 1.5% of the assets. So if you, an, if you annualize that, um, it's still projecting for a pretty decent kind of 18% growth on the year if we keep it up. Uh, digging into those flows, again, we talked about how a lot of investors are, are going to be overweight fixed income right now. And definitely in terms of the flows we've seen uh, in March um, have been weighted to equities. So about $4 billion in Canada uh, came into equities and about $2 billion came out of fixed income. So I think that's uh, some proof points that, you know, investors are, you know, um, see this as an opportunity uh, or as well see it as, as necessary to rebalance. Um, in terms of the U.S. flows, um, similar story, although the, you know, they, they, the U.S. brought in about $7 billion of net assets, which for the U.S. market, $7 billion is, 
just represents 0.2% of the total ETF market. But, you know, more importantly, that trend of equities versus fixed income, 15 billion uh, went into broad equities with another um, 5 billion going into leveraged equities and about 20 billion came out of fixed income. So definitely uh, the market flows have been showing um, increasing investor confidence with equities and willing to rebalance to that target. Um, I think in kind of the higher level, the higher level concept of, um, you know, where the market is right now, uh, we have equity managers, you know, really kind of a kind of a little bit of a battle shaping up between equities and uh, bond managers right now. I think, you know, the equity market's gotten pretty constructive, you know, since March 23rd. The amount of stimulus obviously has been a positive. Um, there's some indications there's flattening of uh, some COVID cases. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of kind of positive things happening. Um, I think, you know, the interesting thing is the bond side, you know, you have the bond managers are a little more worried at this point. So it'll be interesting to see how it shapes up. But certainly we're seeing increased confidence in going into equities over the last month. Yeah, and maybe I'll just chime in on the second part of your question there, Mark. Um, as you mentioned, uh, we do spend a lot of time looking at the options market and pricing in the options market and what that tells us uh, in terms of investor sentiment. You know, we're certainly still in that sort of elevated volatility uh, market, and it's expected for that to happen for uh, quite a few more months. Um, let's take a look at for short term and then long term as well, or longer term in terms of what the options market is telling us. In the shorter term, we, we're starting, we're seeing this balance play out between uh, the likelihood of market selling off and, and the market you know, rallying very strongly. And that makes a lot of sense, and we've seen over the last few few weeks as well since March 23rd, we've had some of the strongest updates the market has ever seen. And so the likelihood of a very strong rally um, in the options market, the options market is telling us the likelihood of a very strong rally uh, on any given day is just as high as a, a very strong sell-off. And so there's a bit of a balance right now between potential of a, a drawdown versus a, a a melt up, so to speak. And we see that again over the short term, over the next you know, one to two months, we, we think that's sort of an even probability. Looking out a bit longer term in terms of when does volatility come back down to what we call normal? Um, and if anyone follows the VIX, um, you know, the VIX under 20 tends to be what the market considers a normal market environment or a, a, a lower volatility uh, market. Um, and that's not expected to play out for, for several months. Um, you know, there is a, a, a spot uh, volatility market, options market, but there's also a forward market in the VIX. And this is, again, projecting out what volatility is going to be one, two, three, six, twelve 12 months from now. And typically what you see when, when VIX does spike up as high as it has um, through this crisis, when it's above 40 for a sustained period of time, um, generally you see it takes several months for it to come back down under that 20 level, back to a, a normal market. And, you know, looking back to past crises, you know, 2008, 2009, for example, um, it actually took over a year from the VIX peak uh, to come back down to uh, under, under that 20 mark. Now, what the market is pricing uh, going forward is that uh, the market does expect that to happen much quicker this time around, but still six, seven months from now um, before that, that gets back in line with, again, what we consider a normal uh, volatility market, and that would be in line with past corrections that we've seen since uh, 2008-2009 in terms of the timing for when that uh, volatility in the market comes back down to a normal level. So that would 
again, projecting still six, seven months of elevated equity volatility. Um, that's not necessarily down markets, but just elevated volatility um, is what the market is currently pricing in. All right. Thanks to both of you for that. I think that's some excellent insight and really, really speaks to the unknowns with investor psychology right now, where, you know, people are starting to talk about going back to work, but no one really has an idea of what that's going to look like, how successful that's going to be, uh, and, and how the, the virus curve is going to look going forward. So certainly heightened volatility is, is with us for a while. So for today's call, now that we set the stage, I'd like to take a walk through some of the factor performance, uh, of course, now that we're through month end, focusing on how certain factors have, have managed through this uh, downturn in volatility. So let's start by recognizing BMO's got a number of factor approaches, income or dividend, of course, quality, low volatility, which we're well known for, and as well, uh, equal weighting, which essentially is, a, is the size of factor and value. So let's start with quality, as that seems to make sense to all investors across market cycles and, and really can stand out during periods of stress right now. How does BMO measure quality? What, what exposure does that bring to the portfolio? And most importantly for our listeners, how have these ETFs done through this volatile market? Give that one to Chris McCainy, please. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And we've discussed quality um, on on these calls in the past as well as as um, as a factor that we think makes a lot of sense to most investors through most market environments. Uh, we think the quality factor protects well on the downside in, in stress markets like we're experiencing right now, but also provides uh, growth exposure for when markets do rebound to be able to participate in that growth. Um, you know, just taking a look at the quality. Uh, exposures that we have, you know, we have a U.S., a Europe, and an all-country world quality. Each of those um, funds has outperformed its benchmark by a considerable amount, or sorry, by the broad market um, uh, relative geography, by a considerable amount since the end of February through the market uh, sell-off, anywhere from, you know, 4 to 5%, depending on which region we're looking at. Um, and I think that goes to how these portfolios are built. So, you know, we, we track the MSCI quality indices for, for our quality exposures. And uh, that's defined as companies that have uh, low debt, high ROE, and earning stability. And when you think about stress markets and the environment we're going through right now, those are really the factors that you want to have in the companies that you're investing in. Okay, low debt makes a lot of sense, obviously, with stress debt markets. Um, you know, there's certain um, concerns about liquidity, solvency of certain companies, particularly in the energy sector. You know, are these companies going to have enough money to stay afloat during this, this sell-off, um, during this, you know, coronavirus-related uh, shutdown of the economy? And obviously, companies that have lower debt levels are going to be able to, to work through this um, easier than those that have a lot of interest payments and have to refinance. Similarly, um, you know, earning stability. Think about companies like consumer staples, all those companies that we're all supporting now from home, um, you know, that you kind of have to day in and day out, no matter what uh, the market environment is doing. Um, those companies that have earning stability are going to be able to, to go through this as well. And so we think quality makes a lot of sense, not just, again, protecting on the downside, but if you're looking to invest today, um, the companies that are going to come out the other side um, are, are generally going to fit into this bucket. 
All right. Thanks, Chris. I, I do believe that quality investing for, for today's markets is something that just makes intuitive sense. But now let's let's move on to low volatility, certainly a factor exposure that BMO ETFs are well known for. Uh, really a unique design as well in the marketplace, uh, with our rules-based approach instead of indexing. Uh, and I think we, we strike a great balance between looking at long-term trends and, and short-term market movement. So how does BMO manage low vol investing? Again, how does it complement a portfolio? And how have these ETFs done uh, through the, the March volatility? So I'll give that one to Chris Heath. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Maybe I'll start with the performance. Um, year to date, you know, we're looking at broad markets being down 11 to 20 percent. You know, S&P 500 now is only down just 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 about 11 percent on the year. Uh, but low vol across the suite is improving again, similar to quality in that three, four, five percent range. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, we're really well known for low vol, and you know, it's a, it's an exposure that can work really well for investors who are seeking to protect capital, particularly in sell-offs. Uh, when I think of the way we construct our portfolios, um, I consider it a very pure approach. So when we talk about low ball as a factor or factor portfolios more generally, um, I think there's kind of two kind of main categories. There's a category where it says, well, I want to look at like the index just with a little bit of tilt here and there, and that's fine. Um, but our approach with low ball, we use a five-year beta, and we really look, whether it's in Canada, U.S., or EP, we're looking for those lowest beta securities. Um, in the respective regions, and we seek to hold those lowest beta securities. Uh, furthermore, we weight towards the beta, so lower lower beta stocks get a higher weight in the portfolio. Uh, we have sector caps, right, to make sure that we don't get too over-concentrated. Um, but really, I kind of characterize that as a pure approach in that we look for low beta stocks and we seek to hold those and hold those uh, lower beta ones in, with a higher weight. I think the benefit of a pure approach in, in times of volatility is you know, if there's a benefit towards holding stocks in more defensive sectors, and generally speaking, there, there is in markets like this, uh, you're going to have a lot more success with a pure approach in a market downturn versus, you know, an approach where you look uh, perhaps a little bit more like the market. So if you look more like the market and the market's going down, you're going to look more like the down. So the pure approach uh, really gives us a benefit in terms of that downside protection in markets like these. Um and then on the flip side, you know, a lot of these low volatility stocks, and it's probably another, you know, we could do a whole call just on low vol, but tend to do very well over the long term as well. They tend to kind of, you know, uh, do better than they their risk might suggest. Like if you have a 0.5 beta and say markets are up 8% a year, you would think, you know, 0.5 beta should give you a 4% expected return. But, you know, it turns out if you actually look at the data, that lower beta stocks actually give you a better return as well. You know, suggesting that investors um, do not pay as much attention to these more defensive, more quote-unquote boring stocks. So, again, a pure approach there benefits us over longer-term market cycles. But, you know, certainly doing their job in the downturn. Um, I looked this morning in Canada. We're doing, you know, better than any other low-ball competitor out there. You know, in the U.S., again, it's outperforming the index this year. We've been advocating for a, for a low ball and a quality 50-50 combination for the last almost couple of years now. That mix has proven out, you know, in down markets and up markets. Um, that 50-50 that mix has been outperforming the index by about 3%, I believe, over the last three years, 3% annualized. So, you know, there's a lot there. And, and then just, you know, final point is, 
you know, the consistency of that metric, I think it's going to be very important going forward. Again, we use a five-year beta as a metric. Um, it's relatively smooth. I mean, of course, it reacts to new data as it comes in, but it's relatively smooth. You know, I have concerns about um, methodologies that use a shorter time frame, such as a you know one-year standard deviation. I think that is going to see a lot of see a lot of noise in the coming months as they rebalance, and I think that will that will um, possibly create some interesting um, issues with those products. But again, ours is pretty stable. It's something we tested, we found to work well, and it's definitely adding a lot of value in this market. All right, thank you, Chris. And I think your last point is probably the most important is to realize with some of these other strategies that are a little more short dated in nature, uh, there is going to be anticipated a lot of a lot of turnover and change in those portfolios at the next uh, rebound. So let's be fair about things and now let's look at factors that have underperformed. I don't think anyone's surprised that, that value has done what it's done, nor that the value factor has been out of favor for some time. Keeping in mind, obviously, that a rebound will eventually come, just timing that is uh, always difficult. But what about dividends? Investors expected downside protection from dividend strategies, a bit from the yield, but as well because it's typically larger, more mature industry-leading companies. But instead, we saw returns in March, uh, you know, really down at market levels and below. So where does this come from? How are the Dingo ETFs constructed and possibly looking at this? And do you see a path towards uh, a rebound? I'll give that again to Chris Heeks. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting that there's a really, there's actually a pretty strong correlation between value and dividends. And, you know, there's a lot of like a research that really suggests, you know, the benefit to investing in dividends uh, really comes from the benefit to investing in value. Kind of a, um, I don't want to say a curse word, but, you know, obviously it's been out of favor for, for 10, for 10 years. Uh, but really there's a lot of similarity with dividends, you know, with dividend investing, you know, generally we're speaking, we're looking to invest in higher yielding companies, you know, within the broad index. And of course, in our strategies, we're looking for sustainable yields and we have various measures to make sure that we're investing in those sustainable yields with the go forward. But, you know, in general, companies with higher yields, say, you know, say that are yielding 2% in excess of the, the composite or whatever the broad index is, the yield's going to be higher because the price is lower, right? So there is that correlation with value where, you know, value exposures, again, you're looking at companies with good fundamentals, but lower prices. So there's a there's very much an overlap there. And I think you can see it, you know, value is almost like an, it's, it's a hypercharged expression of dividend. And I think it's, it's interesting to look at value and it's something to keep on the radar in terms of what to expect from dividend strategies and value strategies. So on the last call uh, last week, we were talking about value and you know, I mentioned the outperformance in 2009 of, of our value strategy of the index. I, I believe I said 20 to 30%, but I looked up the actual number so in 09, value in Canada outperformed by 36%. Um, again, our value strategy is sector neutral strategy, you know, tilted towards companies with good fundamentals, but overall have the same sector composition as the index, outperformed by 30%, 36% in 09. Uh, in 08, it underperformed by only 3%. Uh, the U.S. it was similar, although not as, not as great. You know, value in the U.S. was flat to the market in 08, and in 09, outperformed by 10%. So when you look at the, you know, the performance of dividend strategies year to date, we are noticing some underperformance of dividend strategies going, you know, through this drawdown. And I think it really stems from, you know, this kind of value performance. So, you know, does it set up for a rebound? Yes, I think absolutely it does set up for a rebound. So, 
you know, just like how value rebounded in 09, um, I think value and dividends, when we find that floor, um, are going to be a good exposure going forward. And if you, you know, we only, you know, the, the market bottom was March 23rd. So we only have kind of a couple weeks off that bottom, although we've, we've moved up 16, 17% in the U.S. Um, in fact, dividends have outperformed the broad index. So whereas dividends had underperformed going into the crisis, we've outperformed in the U.S. Uh, by 2 3%. It's something to keep an eye on. Um, again, we, we had mentioned uh, the 50%, uh, 50-50 ZUQ, ZLU, so low-ball quality in the U.S. as a good exposure. You know, I'm tempted to add in you know, some exposure to dividends going forward, um, maybe one-third, 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 because you know, I think it is setting up for a dividend rebound. You know, it's possibly setting up for a value rebound as well. I mean, I, it's hard to say whether this is the market bottom right now, but, I, but certainly it's starting to set up, and I think the go-forward returns from these strategies will be looking pretty good. All right. Thank you, Chris. And I think what's probably most important when we consider the the BMO strategies versus the competition is, you know, that look that you guys do on dividend sustainability, making sure that a company is going to have the ability to pay the dividends down the road. Just one more question before I uh, turn to the lines here. Uh, I'd like to spend a few minutes on responsible investing. So while it's not a distinct factor, it certainly does have a quality tilt based on the environmental, social, and governance screening. And what I think is most interesting as we look at all the stimulus, corporate activity is really coming under the spotlight where share buyback program and the associated sort of management enrichment that comes through that uh, stock option program um, getting getting greater attention. Are you seeing interest in these markets for these new ETFs or is it something that people are just shelving for the time being worried more about market exposure? I think it's a valuable question right now, as, of course, a lot of people are considering rebalancing and repositioning their portfolios. So I'll turn that to Chris McCainy. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. And I think it does make sense to look at at this area and, and really all areas as investors do rebalance, you know, whether that's just getting your equity fixed income exposure back to uh, back to the target where you want it to be or whether it's repositioning for uh, what markets are going to look like going forward. You know, certainly investors should be looking across all different areas, and we've covered a lot of different factors today, but I think this is another area that investors should consider, you know, when they're looking at where to allocate uh, their, their equity and not just equity, fixed income as well going forward. And you, you raise an interesting question. You know, a lot of times when people discuss ESG investing, um, you know, more attention was paid to the E element or, or even the S, but not as much is really spent on the G component. And that's really what we're going to see going forward in terms of companies um, that have the strong management teams that have strong governance being able to come out uh, the other side of this slowdown. I'll really take it back to, to the quality um, element. Um, there, are, there are a lot of similarities here. As you, as you kind of alluded to. During the bull market, there were a lot of companies that would simply issue low-cost debt, you know, interest rates at all times low, and really just introduce your buyback programs to, to, to keep the stock uh, price elevated. And what you're going to need going forward are strong management teams that are able to control their cash flows, control their debt, and be able to, again, come out of this on the other side without any undue harm to, to their businesses. And so companies that make it into the ESG framework, again, the G plays a big element here. Strong governance, 
likely means these companies have more prudent management teams. What does a prudent management team look like? They're not going to take on undue debt unnecessarily just because interest rates are at all-time all time lows. They're going to have a sustainable dividend policy so that um, in times of market stress, they're still able to pay their dividends. And so it's something that um, you, know, you can count on as a source of return potentially for, for investors. Um, and again, they're going to be focused on the cash flow of the company uh, in order to, to make money in, in good times and in bad times. And so we think, obviously, companies that have that prudent management, that have strong governance in place, uh, are going to be able to ride out any short-term down market or economic downturn. And so, again, we think as companies uh, receive aid from whether it's the government, whether it's the Fed, whatever it is, there's going to be certain restrictions placed on these companies that receive these bailouts. And so the companies that do have that strong governance framework are going to be able to work within those uh, restraints that they've been that, that are going to be imposed on them, and those are going to be the ones that are going to be able to benefit from sort of these rescue packages that are going to be coming from from all areas. Whether, again, whether it's the U.S., whether it's Europe, whether it's Canada, um, each area is going to have their own uh, set of, uh, of restrictions on what these companies can do, and they're not just going to be able to get bailouts and then start buying their stock back again. Um, and so you're going to really need to invest with those companies that have that strong governance that have those prudent management teams in order to be able to uh, realize the benefit and, and growth going forward. All right. Thanks for that, Chris. I'd like to thank everyone for joining the call today and spending your time with us this morning. I'd like to thank both Chris McKinney and Chris Heeks uh, for providing their valuable insights, covering a lot of material, giving an update on the, on the factor suite of the ETFs, and as well, uh, the conversation around ESG. Thank you to our panelists for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we delve deeper into BMO's factor investing suite, taking an honest look at which approaches have fared better during the recent sell-off. Unsurprisingly, perennial favorites such as the quality and low volatility mandates have performed well against their respective benchmarks, while others have lagged further behind. For more information on factor-based investing, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed in future episodes, please contact Andrew Vachon at A-N-D-R-E-W dot V-A-C-H-O-N at BMO.com. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio manager represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment tax or legal advice to any party. Investment should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statements that necessarily depend on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.